0: Hello, this is Notes from the Back Row, a podcast like no other, different themes, rotating hosts, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the Mind. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Back Row. This is Jenna Ipkar all by myself, but I have a special guest who's going to be joining me in just a second here. If you listened to our last episode, it was Veronica and I talking about Pauline Kale, who's a famously blunt writer. And in a sort of funny way, I'm kind of continuing that theme into this episode with an interview here with a filmmaker on a rather similar topic. So I am thrilled to be talking today with Emmy Award-winning documentary director and producer Lynn Novick. Thank you so much for being here, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. Lynn's worked extensively with Ken Burns from their collaborations on documentaries about jazz and baseball and the Vietnam War. Lynn has also directed Solo with uh, her own documentary series, College Behind Bars, and most recently uh, available to watch now on PBS's Documentaries Prime Video channel is an excellent three-part documentary that Lynn co-directed with Ken Burns called Hemingway, uh, obviously about the author Ernest Hemingway. And clocking in at six hours, it's an incredibly comprehensive look at this man's life and. Interestingly, you guys spend a lot of time working to dispel some of the myths that surround this intimidating literary figure who's really known chiefly, uh, I'd say, for his hyper-masculinity. And specifically, you focus quite a bit on exploring the impact that his reputation had on his own personal well-being. So so right off the bat, uh, I feel like I have to ask you, and and I'm sure you're being asked some version of this in pretty much every interview that you've been doing here, but um, I would love to know a little bit more about how this project came to be and, and what it was about Hemingway that drew you in. What inspired you to pursue making this film?
1: I guess I have a fairly long relationship with Hemingway. If I really think back, I first began reading Hemingway when I was in high school, and that was in the 1970s. And I think at that time, Something by Hemingway was probably in most high school English curriculum classes. For me, it was 11th grade, Sun Also Rises. I remember it vividly, and I don't remember that much about my education and what books I read. Seriously, that one I remember, because it was so mesmerizing. It was so approachable and yet also so mysterious. So on the one hand, I felt it was easy to read, and on the other hand, I didn't really know what was going on. And so it was, it was a really great book to have the door open to Hemingway and his world and his work. And I am a lifelong reader of fiction. So the transporting nature of a great novel where you lose yourself in another world and get to know people who are as real to you as people in your real life is such a wonderful experience. And Hemingway does that so well in that book. But you know, going forward, I, you know, I read other books on my own. I read short stories. I was always sort of drawn to Hemingway, but didn't know much about him. I certainly drunk in the mystique of Paris in the 20s and his experience of that through both his fiction and a movable feast. So there was just this kind of aura around him. But I didn't know much about his life, in fact. And in the, I guess mid-1990s, I went to Key West on vacation and went to his house. And when I went into the room where he worked, was really overwhelmed with the sensation of being in the place where he had been and thought about the works he had created there. So I went to the bookstore and bought a biography and read it and came back to my colleagues, Ken Burns and Jeff Ward, our writer, and said, we really should do Hemingway. What an amazing story that would be to tell. And they said they had been thinking about other writers. They were about to do Mark Twain. Hemingway was interesting. And we sort of started at that point, really talking about how would we do Hemingway. So that was a long time ago.
0: Wow. Yeah. So a lot of people are probably saying like, why now? Right. But it wasn't really (laughs) a a now. It was more of a this is something that you've, you've clearly been passionate about for a very long time.
1: Yes, exactly. As a filmmaker, Hemingway is a great choice because of the life he led and the degree of celebrity he had and the drama around his life and knowing that it would be visually possible to tell. So it's, it's not just that he's a great writer and had an interesting life, but that he lived his life in public in a way that would make for an
0: interesting documentary film. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because I am also uh, a fan of Hemingway and I've personally always found his writing to be incongruent with that hyper-masculine persona that he touted. And specifically, uh I felt that way and I and I think I got really into Hemingway. I had read him a bit in high school, but it was in college when I finally read A Farewell to Arms that and I and I think I I also read that you were a big fan of that one, right? <laughs> oh yes.
1: Uh, yeah, it, it's a beautiful book.
0: It is. And that was the book that was the book that made me sort of fall in love with Hemingway's writing, because to me, I mean, A Farewell to Arms is this, this like emotionally rich, uh, insensitive book that really wrestles with the human impact of war, as well as all of the contradictions that are involved in that. And it's this, it's this war novel that doesn't bother itself so much with the battles as much as it's portraying war as being this catalyst that that heightens human connection, You know, like it's as the war intensifies, and and Henry becomes increasingly um, disillusioned and uh, wounded. uh, He starts to shift his sights to Catherine instead. So he sort of abandons the war in part to embrace love. (laughs) Yes, it's so beautiful, you know, which is just the opposite of what you'd expect.
1: Exactly. And when I first read the book, which I didn't read in school, I read on my own. I remember that I just I wanted to find out what happened to the love story. And I kind of lost over some of the war scenes, frankly, as a teenager. I really wasn't interested in war and I thought it was kind of boring and I didn't really appreciate the subtleties and the power of what Hemingway was saying about war. So I just kept going to the end for the love story. And when I got to the end, I I was utterly devastated, just horrified and devastated that it ended the way it did. I felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me and then I had to go back and reread it again and try to see, you know, where did this come from? And then understand in the context of this existential crisis of World War I, uh, how that upended everybody's belief that things would be okay in the end because they really weren't. That book really stands the test of time. And it is the opposite of Hemingway's persona. His macho posturing and bravado and talking about being brave and grace under pressure and all of that, that's nowhere in the book. Right. In fact, the book is about how that's meaningless.
0: Right. Which... I'm 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 right there with you. It's amazing to me, and it was it was so strange to read that and then to hear about that myth of who he was. It just doesn't make sense. Thinking about this book now in the context of your the documentary that you put out, it, it was interesting to me to sort of think more about how you know Henry in this book is searching for belonging and, and meaning, really. Which, as you said, was was certainly a, a global existential crisis at the time. But also, there's this. Um, you know this idea of searching for meaning first in war and then shifting that to love when war doesn't work out, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, yes, yeah, it makes the tragic ending, of course, just all that more devastating for the fact that you know that that he just completely guts the concept of glory. You know, there it's a myth in itself. Is sort of to me the the big ending of that of that novel. So watching your documentary, I realized how much of that really did drawn away from his own life and, and his own feelings of alienation and, and fear of losing control, which is something that he essentially masked with that machismo posturing.
1: Absolutely, I completely agree. The machismo posturing serves so many different purposes for him. So I didn't quite understand until we started working on the film and I read a lot more biographies of him and some literary criticism and just got a deeper understanding of how he crafted that persona And how he kind of encouraged his publicist, you know, at Scribner's to kind of imply that some of the things that happened in his fiction actually happened to him. And burnishing his war stories and degree of battlefield accomplishments, which he really doesn't have any. (laughs) So, you know, he's not really a hero. He was an ambulance driver who was bringing chocolate to the men in the front lines on a bicycle and got blown up. And World War One, I, I mean, millions of people just got blown up just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there's not a lot of room for the kind of daring Jew that he gave the impression was part of his war experience. But he's, he's so full of contradictions because he also hates when people lie about their war stories. Including him, you have to assume. So it's this jaded, cynical, war-weary ethos is embodied in the characters, and they're trying to find some meaning in the fact that there is no meaning. But his public persona is kind of the opposite. And it, I think it served him really well in terms of selling books and becoming this icon. We have a spread in the film at the beginning of episode two. It's, I think it's Time magazine. He was on the cover, and there was a painting of him. I think Waldo Pierce, but they you know adapted it for the cover. And he's in his striped French fisherman's shirt, and he's holding the fishing rod and sort of a, an action shot. And then you open up the, the magazine, and it says, The Life of Hemingway. And there's all these photos. It's sort of a photo album of his whole life and representing him and how he represented himself. So he constructed, and he's there posing with animals that he shot and fish that he caught and famous people that he's with. And he's a walking, talking He-Man in this photo spread. And you sort of have to wonder what that was like after
0: a while. Mm. I was always a bit afraid myself to learn more about him because everything that I had heard just sounded so god-awful and I didn't want to ruin the experience of liking most of his writing. (laughs) (laughs) So I really didn't delve too far into who he was as a person because I was sort of content with the novels as standalone. Mm. But your documentary paints a a much more fascinating picture of, of who he was than his mythology ever did for me. And some of the things I really enjoyed hearing about was a bit more about actually his personal relationships and especially his relationship with his third wife, Martha Gelhorn, who was seemingly this self-possessed, strong, intelligent woman who chose her career over being a wife. And, and just the way that he crumbled against that was... <laughs> uh-huh. Sort of, you know, like maybe predictable in a, in a sense, but um, it was surprising because it, it was interesting to see how much he couldn't stand to be second fiddle, but when then when his wives were devoted, uh, he left them because he was too bored.
1: Yeah. I, I hate to overly simplify any one person's complicated emotional life, but he seems to be, and Edna O'Brien says this in the film, he loved being in love. So he was always chasing for that kind of feeling of infatuation and being on cloud nine and just... He describes it so beautifully, this just almost indescribable feeling of infatuation and physical love, and it doesn't last. So, you know, we humans in sort of trying to keep monogamy going and create, you know, family structures, kind of accept that and move on to some deeper forms of love that are perhaps more lasting. And he just seemed he couldn't do that. And whether it's an immaturity or kind of arrested development or... Fear of real vulnerability and intimacy, it's hard to say, but he, he doesn't want to get trapped in what he sees as something boring, something conventional, something that doesn't have that excitement. And so he's always looking for the next person. I think one of the most devastating moments in the film and in his life is when he left his first wife, Hadley, for another woman, Pauline, who was one of Hadley's close friends. And then when he was ready to leave Pauline for Martha Gelhorn, he basically told her what goes around comes around you made me leave Hadley and now I'm leaving you. You should have expected that. And I feel that is one of the most cruel, heartless things anyone could say. And he always externalized responsibility onto the woman. Somehow he's just a passive bystander and he's just being buffeted from one woman to the next, which is the opposite of what is happening. So I I agree with you. Reading his books and not thinking about how he behaved in his personal life is a completely different experience I was really interested though in seeing how, in some of his really great short stories, he does portray relationships in trouble. The bitterness and the recrimination and the cruelty that people, men and women, can show towards each other and the way that you could have loved someone and now you hate them. He does that very well too. So it's all grist for the mill. (laughs) I, every time I read "Nose of Kilimanjaro, and I, which describes a writer who's dying of gangrene on safari, and his wealthy wife has devoted herself to him, and he's so enraged with her for having supported him and kind of emasculated him. He didn't have the necessity of needing to make a living because he's married to a wealthy woman, and so therefore he didn't do the work he should have done, but it's somehow her fault, even though it kind of says it's his fault. Imagine if your husband wrote that. Right. They were still married at the time. <laughs> just oh it's 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 really tough to swallow, really tough to swallow.
0: You guys certainly do not gloss over all of the horrendously awful things that this guy did, which uh was was honestly just as fascinating as as the more emotional side of him. You mentioned uh, Edna O'Brien. I loved all of her interview snippets in this. She was so wonderful. And, and part of that, too, you guys had this really great mix of historians and authors and even uh-huh. politicians. You got John McCain in there. It was really interesting to hear from all of these different People and specifically to hear what they all agreed and disagreed on. Uh, (laughs) I love that that a lot of the women that you interviewed had absolutely no care for *Old Man in the Sea*, where all the men were just like weeping as they talked about
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Edna is a gift to this project and to the literary world. We it was a kind of a hit or miss or a serendipitous process of trying to find writers who would want to speak about Hemingway. Even though he's enormously influential, some writers that we contacted didn't want to come on camera for who knows what reason, they didn't always tell you. So we started reaching out to perhaps maybe less obvious choices, people who hadn't specifically written about Hemingway or you couldn't necessarily trace, you know, a direct lineage kind of thing. And so we were looking for women, certainly, to comment and people from outside the United States and women who had written novels and short stories. And, you know, that's a huge list. But anyway, also writers I like. So, you know, it was really going to my bookshelf and saying, hmm, I wonder if Edna O'Brien would have something to say about Hemingway. And when we wrote to her, she wrote back almost immediately, yes, I would love to do this. He's so misunderstood. I would like to set the record straight. And, you know, when are you coming to London? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was really very special. Yeah, she's, she's really something. And she really felt strongly. She, Hemingway was a huge influence on her, even though you might not see it.
0: You know, it's interesting you're saying some people didn't want to talk about him, which, uh, you know, I I can understand to some degree. But one of the things I really enjoyed hearing about in your documentary is that for all of the talk about how, you know, people are being, quote, canceled nowadays, Hemingway was threatened continually with cancellation, for lack of a better word, by his contemporaries by critics and authors who, who either felt that he had lost himself in that macho posturing or that he wasn't growing with the times by mm-hmm. avoiding politics. And obviously, he's persisted all these decades in spite of it. You know, there, there was never truly a, a good old days uh, time that, you know, that these pe- people like to pretend existed. But I'm curious what you think, because, you know, in the end, I think in, in some ways he, he did really take the criticism to heart and he, and he did evolve you know, not outwardly, he didn't, he did it in his own way, you know, but it it is, he did evolve a bit. He, he tried. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes. I'm not sure his persona really evolved. I think that became kind of a straitjacket, frankly, and really an impossible place to be. And he seems to have set that young and then kind of just worked within it. But in his literary imagination, he did experiment and he did try to, go beyond what he had done before. And sometimes it was successful, sometimes it wasn't. I think one of the saddest things is to see after multiple head injuries and traumas and lifelong serious drinking problems alcoholism, you know, by the time he's in his early 50s, he's really not doing that much writing or writing all that well and having trouble finishing things and having trouble really cohesively envisioning a novel, say, and bringing it to completion. And he's working on multiple projects at once and some of them are very long and unwieldy, and some of them are just not what he wants to be doing. So he, he seems to really be struggling. It's kind of miraculous that he's able to do Old Man and the Sea at the end. It's not the end of his life, but it's the last thing he published. Is he really growing as a writer? I, I don't know. Maybe he's going back to something, touching something deep that he has t- tried to do before, and just because of where he is in his life, able to express some experiences and feelings about the human condition that, maybe he wouldn't have done when he was 30 or 25.
0: It does seem his persona became a straitjacket for him in a way, as as you say. And I think, I, I kind of think it's what still strangles his image today for a lot of modern uh, audiences to care more about him in a way. Yeah. Though, I mean, obviously he's still well-known and read and beloved even. But I'm curious after, you know, after having spent all of this time working on this film and thinking about him, do you, do you have a pitch that you might give to younger people or older people who have dismissed him even... Do you think that we should continue to uphold this this sort of troubled man's legacy? Is there, at this time where we are making a a point to reevaluate people, which I think is always important to do for any historical figure, and if we've learned anything from the past couple years, it's that, you know, statues and and symbolism don't tell the full story, obviously, but. um,
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think Hemingway should be on Mount Rushmore or on a pedestal or in a pantheon, you know, any of those kind of words, or even a canon, I don't know. I just, I feel we have this human impulse to kind of categorize and rank and assign people some kind of status on some ladder. And he himself was very aware of that and wanted to be up in the pantheon with Shakespeare and Tolstoy, that or Dostoevsky. That's what he, you know, Turgenev, whatever. That's how he wanted to be remembered. And he wanted to be way above all other American writers, maybe except Mark Twain. And I just, I find that's a very masculine thing, actually. This kind of, I have to be first, I have to be best. I have to be the most important. I would rather shift away from that and think about we, in a very healthy and necessary way, are facing dark truths about our history and our nation and our culture from a feminist point of view, from a multiracial point of view. And if we're going to be honest about our past, we're going to have to reckon with these very significant, important white male voices. We can't just, I don't think, push them off stage and just pretend they weren't there. So he's part of our history, whether we like it or not, our literary history and our cultural history. And technically and sort of creatively as a writer, he's hugely influential, stripping all that away. Then on top of that, and maybe more relevant to people today who might be put off by his, too many people, kind of repellent public persona of this guy who hunts and fishes and brawls and womanizes and you know, pontificates and loves bullfighting. What's so interesting to me about him is that his work at his best is actually a critique of that. So it's not just that he has these dichotomies where he's one way in public and another way in his work, but if you take a story like Hills Like White Elephants or up in Michigan, two stories that we deal with in the film, he's showing in a pretty interesting way what's wrong with that kind of masculine assertion and bullying behavior by making you, the reader, whether you're male or female, feel for and sympathize with the female character who's being pressured relentlessly to have an abortion and being told it's no big deal, everything's gonna be fine, it's just a little, they let the air in and we'll just be like we are today. As Miriam Mandel, literary scholar said in the film, even if you haven't been in that situation as a woman, you have experienced, most women have experienced that kind of masculine assertion, being bossed around, being pushed, being pressured. And he does it so well. And he's not doing it to celebrate the guy. He's, the way he does it, whoever you are, any reader would read that and feel this guy is just being a jerk and this woman is going to stand up for herself or she isn't, but it's not portrayed in a positive light. So I think we have to give Hemingway a lot of credit for that. And that's why his best work endures. It's beautifully written and technically it's masterful how he shapes a story and gives us words on the page. But what he's trying to say underneath it is really powerful. And it's almost like you have to be a toxic guy to know what they do and how they are and then describe it, but not as a good thing. And I, I think he does that really in a pretty brilliant way.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's it's funny because you, you touch upon in the documentary about some of his more... Uh, eyebrow-raising uh, sexual proclivities, which, you know, I, I don't know. I think sometimes we have a bit of a Freudian knee-jerk reaction to sort of point to that as something that's more revealing. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I kind of feel like what has been, in the end, the most revealing was the way that you guys talk about Up in Michigan and the way that you uh, really pay close attention to how he has written these novels and, and short stories and, and what exactly is on the page right in front of you in black and white, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's really hard to argue with. In addition to representing beautifully in Up in Michigan sort of
1: as much as a man probably could, the experience of being a woman and being essentially forced into a sexual act, we might have sort of halfway been open to flirting and then all of a sudden this thing is happening and it's not what you wanted and you don't you can't get out of it. I mean I think he does that incredibly well and he also to my mind and to my ear has such a great way with dialogue of showing how difficult it is for men to express their feelings. So little is said because as we know, especially from his time but even in our time, this is not how men generally operate they don't tell you what is happening inside them. And you know, how many women have had the experience of tell me what's going on, what are you thinking about? Nothing, I'm fine, you know, that kind of thing. And he does that with a lot of irony and undertow. So it's, it's helpful to understand how men are and how they think and how they behave. If you want to understand that, and Ernest Hemingway is a good place to start.
0: <laughs> nice, er- Ernest Hemingway dating advice, I like it. <laughs> Uh, Last question. I feel like I got to ask, you know, you've worked with Ken Burns for decades now, and you've collaborated as both co-director and producer. And I'm curious, since Ken has such a distinctive style and tone that he's known for as a filmmaker, uh, how does that impact your role as a collaborator?
1: Well, you know, we have worked together for a very long time. So when, when I first came to work with Ken and his brother Rick and Jeff Ward, the brilliant historian who writes our scripts. I was really just trying to learn what they did and how to help realize their vision. And I'd say that was true for the first films, first film Ken and I made together, which was uh, the history of baseball. I had never worked on a big, epic historical series before. I'd done a lot of other producing. So I really wanted to understand what Ken wanted the film to be and to kind of help make that happen. But since then, our roles really have evolved to much more collaborators on a much more equal plane. We both have ideas, we both have a vision, we both want to make the best film and don't always agree. And it's so hard to describe a collaboration. If you could come to the edit room, you could see what that's really like. But what it really means is a kind of very open process where we are responding to either a script or an interview or the film on screen in a rough cut and seeing that there's problems is not quite working. It's boring, it's unclear, it's um, redundant, any number of things, or the picture doesn't match what we're saying. And then throwing out ideas of how to fix it and listening to each other and being open to whose ideas will make the film better. Sometimes it's Ken. sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Sarah Botstein, our producer. And we have a sort of willingness to basically, out of a lot of mutual respect, try anything that seems like a good idea. So that's been a really incredibly rewarding experience because I think I feel, I think Ken would agree, together we make a better film than either one of us could make on our own. So that's what more could you ask for? As far as over the years, really since Frank Lloyd Wright, which was a long time ago, but I've done most most of the interviews for most of the films we've made together. I find it really meaningful and rewarding and profound to sit with people and hear their stories. And that means getting out in the field and going to wherever the people are, getting to know them, talking to them like we're doing right now, you know, but really over time connecting with people and being present. And I, you know, bring that back to the edit room. It's, it's a different relationship when you've been with the person and you kind of have a sense of who they are. So like going to London, interviewing Ed and O'Brien, that helped me understand Hemingway in a particular way. And so I think I bring that back to the edit room. But it's also good for Ken, if he hasn't been there, he's not sort of clouded by how much I love Edna now. So, you know, it's like he's just responding to what's on screen in that case and can see it maybe more clearly than I can, what's going to be good, what isn't going to be good. So each project and each situation has its own nuances, but there's a lot of respect and a lot of creative back and forth.
0: That's great. I, that's It's really nice to hear of, too, just as... As a, as a woman who also works in media quite frankly i'm like oh that's exciting you have a really good deal yeah. there.
1: <laughs> yeah well it's you know i i mean i'll also say i think i'm not i have not been comfortable talking about this as much because i think it's partly a function of the me too movement nothing to do with Ken and me too not at all but just how the, the media generally hasn't fully maybe recognized our collaboration i'll say that over the many years now i think definitely but it's been a, a while there's been many projects we've worked on where I'm the co-director, but somehow it gets lost in the shuffle. So.
0: Well, I'm, I'll, I'll start the rumor that um, Ken Burns doesn't actually exist, and it's always just been No, Lynn no, no. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, 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 it's nothing, Ken has been nothing but gracious and generous, right. it's really just a question of his brand is huge, right, and there's a shorthand, you know, so I understand that, but it really, I think the, the fact that have, how we collaborate, it's hard to describe, so it sometimes doesn't get across.
0: Thank you so much, Lynn. It was really wonderful talking with you about this. And uh, so everyone watch Hemingway, streaming now on PBS Documentaries' Prime Video channel. For a a six-hour-long documentary, it was riveting.
1: (laughs) Thank you. And I think it's still streaming for a little while more.
0: This podcast is a presentation of back com, co-founded by Veronica Doljenko and Jenna Ipkar, also featuring Carlo Van Stepout and Dan Gorman.